at the root of Nazi ideology was fake history. You know, they they believed in the whole Aryan mm. thing, and the mm. um, they believed that the Germans were descended from the people of Atlantis. And uh, I mean, bonkers, absolutely bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. And unfortunately, um, fairly sensible archaeologists. You know, in Indiana Jones, you've got a whole unit of <laughs> yeah. Nazis going out, out looking for sort of the mm. Ark of the Covenant and um, the Holy Grail. Well, that really did happen, you know. Yeah. Hi everyone, before we start, I want to take a minute to talk about my next book. You may have heard about the story of GameStop in January or February and thought it was all over. You're sadly mistaken. Unfolding Online has been a clash between the corrupt practices of Wall Street and the hive mind of the internet. It's a hot, raging information war pitting retail investors against financial giants swimming in corruption and fraud. The trailer is at the end of this podcast, but if you want to help crowdfund the book or just find out more, you can sign up to my mailing list to get access to a preview of chapter one or go to whenmoon.com to read more about the book. The first 200 people to pre-order the book will get a free pack of To The Moon crayons with their book. I just want to make a quick mention of our sponsors. Namecheap are one of the cheapest places on the internet to get a domain name for your next website. I've used Namecheap for all the sites I've ever purchased and I've found it really easy to use. Spreaker are a rapidly growing platform for podcast recording, publishing, and monetization with pricing plans as low as $7 per month. A cheap way to host your podcast and start earning from your back catalog of shows. Finally, ExpressVPN is the internet's most trusted VPN. Protect your privacy and watch and view content that is location locked you could even try watching Netflix from a different country. And right now, they're offering 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Please use the links in the description below if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Andrew Scott, better known as Otto English, the journalist, professional irritant and author of Fake History. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, not a problem. So, what is history's biggest lie? Well, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big question to start with. Um, mm. I think the biggest lie for me—it's a personal thing—the biggest lie of history is uh, what I call in my book the the conceit of we, the idea that we are uh, on islands or spits of land or within borders have some unique sort of nationalist identity inherent within us so if you take the english for example of which i am one um the english like to tell themselves that they have the greatest sense of humor in the world uh that they have some sort of inherent strength that comes out at times of need like the the magic potion in the asterix books you know um and that uh we the dunkirk spirit the the blitz spirit and all this stuff and that this is a unique thing to us and that if you follow back through our unique history we are unique at every turn and corner and that every step 
on that journey was somehow leading to some moment of great grand destiny. Uh, ironically, uh, that is not unique to the English or the British or anybody else. Pretty much every nation on earth <laughs> has, uh, has a conceit of we and a belief that they are somehow at the centre of the world and at the centre of things. Um, you know, and most nations place themselves at the centre of maps, which, which I only mm. discovered when I was a child on holiday in Canada and I was staring at this map on my cousin's wall. And uh, Canada was in the middle of the map. And I thought, well, the hell's that about? Everybody knows the Greenwich me <laughs> the Greenwich line goes through Greenwich, yeah? Why why would they yeah, put yeah. Canada? And then some years after that I lived in Indonesia and Indonesia slap bang in the middle of the map. Um <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I think that is that is the greatest lie of history that um nations nation states are uh, uh, themselves, you know, complete ma made up conceits. Um mm. And I think once you start to unpick that, uh, all the other lies of history sort of come apart like tissue in a hot bath. You know, it's uh, the the whole the whole fabric of it falls apart. And really, that's that's what my book's about. And I think that's what annoys people about it because <laughs> because it's a fundamental truth. Uh, you know, mm. nations do not spring into life like um, you know early little fish type things. Yeah. Do you think that that um, that sort of patriotism or love of of wherever people are from is like a really inherently human thing, or do you think like the idea of the nation has kind of been birthed because it's a very useful tool for governance? So we are undoubtedly tribal in instinct and that obviously goes way 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 back to when we were tribal all of us all, not us all of our ancestors were tribal people i was doing it myself you see. <laughs> um certainly for most of history there was no such thing as a nation state and people didn't uh weren't bothered you know if you're if you're a, a serf toiling the, the the ground you your loyalty is to your family and to your your master you know the uh, master of your estate whoever that might be yeah the, the notion of a nation it is incredibly modern you know it's only really in the last three or four hundred years and yes they have been totally used by rulers to to motivate and uh, you know they call it the footballification don't they of politics in the modern era but that's really been going on for a long time you know, everybody comes behind a flag and comes behind a national anthem and and all this and I, I find that deeply deeply depressing to be honest mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the longer I live the more depressing I find it because you you find otherwise quite sensible people starting to do it you know I have quite often on Twitter I'll have people say oh you would say your English you know, like I chose to be born in Essex, <laughs> like, like, like I'm inherently like Boris Johnson because I, mm. I live in England, that, that I have ownership of Brexit because I was born in England, even though I didn't vote for it, that everything <laughs> bad that England has done, it somehow belongs to me because I live and am born in England. Um, and that's complete nonsense, you know, that there are... Uh, 
there are people who think the same way as I do across across England and across the world. I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the the notion of of tribalism based simply on like the location of your birth is something like being from Northern Ireland. I'm very aware um, yeah. of the of the the fact that you know if you were born five miles uh, in a in a different direction that you might be you might have a totally different worldview. So there's is not it's definitely not an alien concept to me. Um, the one thing I I wanted to ask actually that we you said that um, the idea of the nation state was only three or four hundred years old. Um, would you put Rome and Greece in in that kind of category if you go back to to that okay. kind of world? because they were they were quite proud of of the the sort of uh, you know, Athens very, or, or Sparta or, yeah, Rome. Yeah, they, they were very broad in their ambition, though, weren't they? I mean, anybody, I mean, the British nixed the idea, if you take the Romans, of, of the Pax Romana and the, that anybody could be a Roman citizen. It was a very European Union idea, isn't it? That anybody mm. could be a Roman. Um, you didn't have to be born in Rome or, or within what we now call Italy, to, to be a Roman. Mm. Um, it was a bit different with Greece, but, but yeah, I mean, ancient city-states, yes, they had us, uh, the people who were allowed to be citizens within them uh, mm. were, would have had a, a sense of their nation-state, that they were city-states. But the, but the idea of modern countries like France or okay. the United Kingdom or... Italy or whatever. This is a relatively modern concept. Mm. So, where did your your love of of history come from, and like what what led you to write write this book? So, uh, it, okay. So, I mean, that, that's a, if you unravel that, there, there's several things. That I I was one, I'm one of those weird people who had a very older parent. So, it doesn't make me weird. <laughs> Might <laughs> my, my father was was quite well into his fifties when I was born, so um, which was very unusual back back then. So as I grew up in the seventies and eighties, I was sort of a uh, sort of jarred uh, uh, generation, if you like. Uh, my you know my father, his mindset was his, his cultural points of reference were stuck pre-war. So I, I grew mm. up with things like Noel Coward and Bing Crosby and uh, stuff like that. That might sound like a weird way to go into history. <laughs> but, <laughs> that, but those are my points of reference. My other points of reference were that my father, unlike almost all of my friends, my father had actually fought in the Second World War. And my father had joined up uh, right at the start of 1930, uh, 1939, in September 1939, and um, was in a reserved occupation and got out of it and joined the army and actually joined the Indian army and went out to what was then Ceylon and then into Africa and up through Italy and so, so forth and so forth. Like a lot of children, like a lot of boys in the 1970s, uh, I was obsessed with war, and that was because the prevailing culture then was still very much sort of imbued with this was the last great thing we did, you know, it was th 20, 30 years after the war and the toys were all military and, you know, action man and tanks and little rows of soldiers and things. Um, I say in the book, actually, everybody back in my age group was obsessed with two types of wars. 
War Wars and Star Wars. <laughs> and, and, for, and for me, War Wars won out. I grew up in rural Essex and I would sort of dress up as a soldier and go out into the fields and like pretend I was and stalk the farmer in his tractor and things like that. <laughs> but the, the great grand disappointment for me was that my father um, refused to play along. So he had mm. been in the war. But he refused to make it some great romantic where eagles dare game. He he was very honest about it and uh, very unromantic about it and and sort of the bits he had enjoyed because uh, and that's a very important thing. People do actually enjoy being in war sometimes, which is something which people don't really talk about. The bits he'd enjoyed was liberating villages where there were no enemy <laughs> because everybody came out. <laughs> Um, mm. Swapping wine, bully, swapping bully beef for wine, um, traveling the world, seeing the great pyramids in Egypt, climbing up one of them illegally, even oh. then. Um, and these were the wow. things my father. These were the things my father had enjoyed about the war, and there were the things he feared, and there were the the narrative of my father's war was totally out of kilter with the sort of cultural narrative of war. And in addition, uh, my grandfather, when I was a child, was still very much alive. He had fought in the trenches in the First World War. His version of the war was him sitting in his chair crying. Uh, so when I tried to get the stories out of him, he would get very upset. Um, and again, that didn't fit in with my narrative of of war as a sort of romantic thing of people running across trenches. And so my book starts mm. with my grandfather, whose whose real story was spun by my own family into something very heroic of marching off to war. When in reality, when when I dug into my grandfather's story, he was in the machine gun corps, and it was brutal and dirty, and clearly left him with lifetime mental health problems. I didn't realise that when he was alive, but I realise it now, <laughs> and I don't think anyone appreciated it at the time. So, why? Where did my interest in history come from? Inevitably, it came from those two figures in my life who had lived through history. Um, mm. And I think it also, they both unintentionally perhaps got me questioning everything because if, if the narrative I was getting from the people I knew was so different to the glorious narrative of war, um, then, then something was amiss. And, and I, I, it's very odd, from very early childhood, my, my parents were churchgoers, Anglican churchgoers, and we would always go to Remembrance Sunday. And that was a big thing in my village. And my father never wore his medals, never mentioned that he'd been in the army, never, ever made a thing about it. And, and actually, later on, I discovered that several of the other men of his vintage in the village one of whom had actually been in the SAS, in the, the original SAS. They, too, did not wear their medals and made no, no mention of it. They just sort of quietly stood there. And I kind of started to get a real problem with Remembrance Sunday. And, and weirdly, uh, uh, around 2014, when I um, began becoming a journalist, belatedly, um, 
some of my early pieces were for the independent were about like poppies and uh and around 2016 when brexit happened and, and nigel farage and case started really appropriating the symbolism of remembrance i began to take real offense you know i felt like i, I felt like none of these people were there uh, none of these people have anything to do with it, but they feel that it's okay to appropriate the lives and the sacrifices and the suffering uh, of people who were there and mould it into some sort of homogenous tale of heroism or victimhood. And I think that's the origin of my book. That's the short answer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> No, wow, that's that's uh, that's that's a really powerful answer in 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 many ways. Um, now, I, I was I was planning to ask this later, but we'll just go for it now. Is um, so one of the uh, one of the things that that made me want to ask you on um, uh, initially, and then I went and looked at your your book and everything, was uh, the video you'd made on Twitter, um, sort of in response to to Neil Oliver, some of his comments that he'd made. Um, uh, especially that um, there's a quote here that you had. You said that uh, you wanted to uh, cremate the dangerous and stupid notion, uh, this idea that people fought in World War II for your and my freedom. Um, and mm. like, the clip was only two minutes, so it, it, like there wasn't really um, yeah. time for you to go, go deeply it, into the things. Part of it, there is a longer video, but that was the Twitter clip is about two minutes. Yeah, they edited it to mm. within an inch. Yeah, sorry, go. On. Yes. No, it's all right. Um, so I I kind of thought quite a lot about that, and yeah. I I spoke to uh, a veteran who had been in in Afghanistan actually at the weekend, and I was kind of asking him what his understanding of of why uh, people had decided to go to war in in the Second World War, and he told me he had uh, he'd spoken to quite a lot of veterans who were still alive when he'd first signed up, and that. Uh, the the people at least that he spoke to were very much um, and perhaps this is like their own minds trying to revise why they did it but they said that they had signed up because they were fighting for the ideals of freedom and liberty and that that was their their yeah understanding or their their yeah. opinion on why they had decided to sign up um, and to me it seems at least that the argument is is compelling as as why as to why britain chose to go to war and obviously there's never just one singular reason um but yeah i wanted to i wanted to get you to unpack um in a bit more detail what you'd said because uh yeah it's it sort of yeah yeah I, yeah yeah i I, I, lo I love that question so i first of all millions of people took part in world war one and world war two from the British Isles, yeah? And if you mm -hmm. take the, the, the British Empire, as it then was, um, millions more, yeah? Um, the idea that, so, so f let's, just, let's just get rid of one very uh, sort of uh, awkward truth as well, which, which people don't like to acknowledge, which is that there remains this sort of notion of a sort of dad's army Britain fighting a mighty Nazi foe an unstoppable Nazi foe in 1940 after the fall of France. <clears throat> it's just complete nonsense, you know. Um, Britain was a superpower, one of, and and in terms of our air force and our navy, we we outgunned, we we far outgunned 
the, the German Navy and Air Force. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of the resources and military might we could put on, long term, you know, famously, the Indian Army became the largest uh, volunteer army in the world in history, you know, uh, which is why my father was in the Indian Army. Uh, although he was a white officer, the, the Indian Army, I think, had well over a million men in it by, the, by 1945. So um, Britain pulled on huge resources. Britain did not stand alone against Nazi Germany in 1940. What Britain did was noble, and, um, and what Churchill did was noble in continuing to fight. But noble is a, is a slightly dangerous word because it was also in Britain's interests to keep fighting. Because inevitably, once Germany dug down and secured its power, which is what people thought it would do, Britain would be threatened and the empire would be threatened. And a lot of people, so my, my uncle Charles, actually, who died 10 years ago, my uncle Charles, who was actually a, an Irish citizen who volunteered to be in the British Army, but he was very British. <laughs> so he, he made a big deal about being Irish, but he was a British citizen. Uh, uh, sorry, he was very British <laughs> in his mentality. I remember him telling me um, 20 years ago that he joined up because he thought the empire was threatened, right? Now, now right. nobody talks about that anymore. <laughs> people talk about how Brit British people volunteered, uh, although he was Irish, but people volunteered to fight for liberty and these grand notions. But people did also fight because they wanted to keep the preeminence of Britain going, and they wanted to keep the empire going, and all those things. And some people, like my father, to some extent, felt it would be a big adventure. And yes, they might have later said or claimed that they were imbued with higher motives or things, but they had heard the stories of their own fathers 20 years before and felt that it would be an adventure. I mean, my, I remember my father saying, you know, just like people say they all thought it would be over by Christmas in 1914. Mm. I remember my father saying that he raced to join the army in 1939 because he wanted to be in the army. He wanted to be in, a, in the war. And, you know, he was a very straightforward and fairly honest man, my father, as honest as we can be. And I believe that. I believe his, his, probably his greatest motivation was to have an adventure. Um, uh, so the idea that all of those people who, who joined in both world wars had one thing that motivated them to join up is I'm afraid nonsense. Uh, you know, the, the, the volunteer army in India, yes, they volunteered, but many of them would have volunteered because it was a good life, good, solid pay. Britain needed soldiers. Um, being a soldier in the Indian army was well paid. You got three meals a day and you got to travel and have adventure as well. So people become soldiers in wartime and peacetime for all manner of reasons. I, I you know, I, I worry also that veterans in this country are often hugely revered when it's a volunteer army, you know, and, and, and uh, that's not to take away from what those people do. But, but I know people who've joined the army and, and many of them did, I mean, when I was younger, many of them did so because they thought it would be an adventurous lifestyle. In fact, the British army has sold itself for years as being, have an adventure. You know, you can go skiing and meet girls in bars. Um, and uh, so 
I, I think the idea that everybody grandly joined up for noble patriotic reasons is a dangerous, pernicious, dangerous idea. Uh, in addition, um, in the First World War, half of those who served in the First World War were conscripted. They were told to go, right? Mm, in the Second yeah. World War, everybody was conscripted. <laughs> so, so in the Second World War, conscription was brought in immediately. There was no faffing around. In, in, in the First World War, they brought conscription in 1916. In the Second World War, they brought conscription in immediately. So every man in the country uh, between the ages, of, uh, I'll have to get this right, but I think it was between the age of 18 and 28 initially, but I might have got that wrong, possibly 30. Every man, anyway, every man of military age was conscripted, not necessarily to go into the, into the armed forces. Some went down the mines, some, some went into um, steelworks and things like that for the war effort, but everybody was conscripted. So the idea that everybody joined up for patriotic reasons is untrue because many people were forced to go. And as you can see with coronavirus now and people who don't want to comply with the rules, a lot of people objected in both world wars. So in the First mm. World War, again, a piece of history which has been conveniently forgotten, when they brought in conscription in 1916, there were mass demonstrations against it. So there was a huge demonstration in London in 1916, which culminated in a rally in Trafalgar Square, where hundreds of thousands of people turn out objecting to conscription. <laughs> so, so also, we also believe that in 1914, 18, everybody sort of went along with it, even though, you know, Captain Blackadder was in the trenches and, you know, they were all getting on with it. Um, a lot of people objected to it. And a lot of people objected to World War II, and a lot of people objected to conscription in World War II. But that all gets brushed under the carpet because the overarching narrative of Britain standing up against the might of the Nazis or the German uh, Imperial Army in the First World War doesn't match that narrative. We want to believe that our ancestors, the we, our great country, we all rallied together and went and did something. Now, if I say something like that, I know immediately I'll have someone go, oh, he hates his country. <laughs> but I don't hate my country, and I don't hate the sacrifices my father and grandfather and millions of others made. I just mm. think we have to get the history right. And that's what fake history is about. It's not about hating your country. It's about getting the truth out. <laughs> well, it's just kind of communist. Anne Whittacombe once called my mother a communist. My mother was actually the chair of the local Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's that's stunning. I really, I really hope she, yeah, she clapped back quite nicely with that. Um, she told that you know, on certain terms, who she was, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, you know, Anne Whittacombe isn't exactly a good representative of uh, <laughs> <laughs> well thought out arguments. Or, <laughs> but uh, do you think that there's um, at least something in there that the the people of Britain maybe maybe the initial reason for going off to war for many of them was um, mixed in with a whole bunch of reasons. 
Um, but do you think that there was, I don't know, like some sort of overarching feeling of we're standing up for the values of Britain, at least amongst the people who had to go through a lot of hardship with rationing and, um, you know, losing brothers, uh, sons, husbands. Um, do you think that the reason that they were willing to endure some of the hardships of war, either abroad or at home, was because of the the ideas at least that they were standing up for yeah like uh, you know freedom liberalism the ideas of 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 what britain was at least espousing at that time maybe not um embodying in the way it, it sort of went on to but that, that that was the things that they were you know claiming to believe in at least do you get do you get what i'm, I'm trying to say Yes, I mean, I, I mean, that's the problem. I'm now going to attack what I said earlier. In my sort of broad swipe at uh, people's motivations, you know, I, I have, I've got a lot of faith in human beings, actually, <laughs> and the integrity and the decency of, of most people. And, um, and yeah, undoubtedly, people, um, it would have been a mixed bag of motivations, I think, you know, and, and undoubtedly that the the, let's not beat about the bush. The Nazi ideology and Nazi Germany was one of the most evil and barbaric um, entities to to take. You know, to, one of the most barbaric. I don't even want to. I was trying to avoid using the word civilizations. One of the most barbaric totalitarian governments in history, and what they did was, you know beyond words really um and undoubtedly people were inspired to fight them and thank god they did you know and thank god they were defeated and unfortunately the ideas of nazism haven't entirely gone away or or extreme nationalism but the um yes undoubtedly people fought it with good high motives but but, but but we mustn't pretend that it was just that, that people only fought the Nazis for the good high motives. That Winston Churchill, I, I watched Darkest Hour the other day. Um, I'd never actually made my way through it, the, the film uh, about Winston Churchill, with my daughter, actually, uh, my 14-year-old daughter. And my daughter actually started to get really annoyed with me <laughs> because I started shouting at the television. And she kept saying to <laughs> <laughs> she kept saying, Daddy, you've got to realise that they're telling a story and <laughs> that, that, um, <laughs> and and she was right, you know. And the stories we tell about ourselves and the good stories we tell about ourselves are probably important to some extent. But Winston Churchill uh, did not take on Hitler and the Nazis simply because he could foresee the Holocaust or the, the invasion of Europe or the subjugation of people. He, he did it largely because Churchill, at, at the end of the day, Churchill was an empire man. He was a man of the empire who believed in the empire and he wanted to keep the empire and British influence going. Um, and he had self-interest. He had long wanted to be prime minister and he wanted to be a great prime minister. Anybody who becomes prime minister wants to be a great prime minister. There's nobody who goes, oh, I don't want to be a great prime minister. But uh, <laughs> I'll just try it. And see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll try it for a bit, see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Like, you know, not like a weekend job, is it? Um, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway. So yeah, you, you you've mentioned the, the the kind of the remnants of some of the 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 Nazi ideology has has sort of endured, um, and I guess yeah, there's it's something that I I don't think that we're ever going to fully dispel because it's the darkest parts of of human the human psyche that leads people there. I mean, we can we can do all all we can to uh, ensure that that's not where. A, a majority of people go, yeah. but um, it's 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 very difficult to kind of stamp out an idea altogether when it's rooted in sort of yeah, it's 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 somewhere in there for for whatever evolutionary reasons or I there's there's something that I I, I feel like we we have there's there's many things we can do to combat it, but I'm not sure we can ever totally dispel it. So we always kind of have to be on the lookout for it a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, as um, it, also, you know, the Nazi, the root of Nazi ideology was fake history. You know, they they believed in the whole Aryan mm. thing, and the mm. um, they believed that the Germans were descended from the people of Atlantis, and uh, I mean, bonkers, absolutely bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. And unfortunately, um, fairly sensible archaeology. You know, in Indiana Jones, you've got a whole unit of <laughs> yeah. Nazis going out, out looking for sort of the mm. Ark of the Covenant and um, the Holy Grail. Well, that really did happen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It did yeah. And, and I've got it features in my book. You know, they, they went out searching for evidence that they were the descendants of the people of um, Atlantis. Um, and it's totally, totally bonkers. And, and they spent millions and millions of rush marks on it. You know, they, they, um, they, they invested huge sums in trying to prop up these crazy theories of um, cod scientists. I mean, it's, it's almost as if a, a government were to come to power in this country and then decide that everything that the the the, the anti vaxxers and the COVID deniers and the the sort of people the flat earthers uh, that everything they said was truth and at the root of British identity, and then they spent billions of pounds trying to send people out to prove that the Earth was flat and that you know <coughs> you mm. contracted coronavirus from five G. It's like. Um, I mean, that's basically what they did. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the Nazis were bonkers, uh, totally bonkers, but but dangerously, dangerously bonkers mm. because they ended up being responsible for the deaths of 60-odd million people, in mm. directly and indirectly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a lesson in, in what happens when people go unchallenged in, in crazy beliefs. I mean, like, mm. yeah, for me, yeah. It's it's like the for me it's the it's the ultimate reason for people to not be like censored. I'm I'm like I am very I'm very big on like if you want to defeat an idea you have to or like you want to dispel or or like defeat an argument or a, an idea you have to you have to let people you have to give them enough rope to hang themselves basically in in a way you have to like let them speak their stupidity and then explain why that's wrong or or counter it because that 
that will not only like shut down or at least undermine what they're saying it will display to the world and anyone that might believe that that someone saying something you don't think is correct is infallible some genius person who's you know discovered the the one truth like you have to you have to allow them to say that and then sort of slowly undermine it and i always felt felt feel that that's the best way to do it and that's what the nazis yeah didn't allow to happen and that kind of brings us on to um one of the things i wanted to ask you about because as a student of history you've seen um a lot of or you've at least looked at the the emergence of some totalitarian regimes um and more authoritarian uh, authoritarian governments and there's a lot of, a lot of talk being thrown around at the minute that the UK government is becoming authoritarian in, in one way or another. Um, and I've seen some commentators who I feel are being um, sort of loose with the word fascist, using that to describe the UK government. I'm not sure it's quite there at this point. No, it's, um, it's totally inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say sort of... Uh, I, 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 like, I, I look at them as, as almost wannabe authoritarians in a way. They've, they, they, with some of the moves they're making, like things like uh, the policing bill, um, the the dark money that's thrown around, um, the sort of revolving door, the the clamp down on journalists, the treatment of people like um, Julian Assange. They, they, uh, the police had raided some art installation um, a few months back uh, that had uh, some sort of poster or something that the government didn't like, and they raided it with like 30 police officers. And there's lots of kind of concerning things like that going on. And I was curious as uh, having, uh, yeah, you've looked at history. Is like, is like, how concerned should we be about this? Yeah, well, so I came at history. I mean, I'm not a historian. I, I, I came at history from a journalist's point of view on that. Even better, an asker of awkward questions. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, or, or, you know, the, so that's that's how I view myself. I, I try to I try to ask awkward questions. Obviously, that one of the dangers of social media as well is that people start to assume that people know everything or or have some broad understanding of everything. And I, I'm happy to admit that I am ignorant about a vast number of subjects. So, <laughs> and I think it's very important that people do that as well. Um, mm. So, um, I don't understand the intricacies of the crime and uh, policing bill but I, I have a broad understanding of those things uh, but but not an intricate understanding my take on boris johnson and the government is that they are essentially populists uh now yes the nazis to some extent were populists and yes authoritarian governments now across the world tend to be populists that does not mean that the Conservative Party are Nazis or, you know, or like Erdogan or someone like that. But there is a danger that you start to go down that route. Not, not quickly, but, but slowly. Uh, mm. And people who go, oh, that could never happen here, which I find a really tiresome trope, yeah, don't understand history. Because Germany, for example, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, was a fairly democratic uh, you know, arguably one of the most democratic countries on earth. Uh, and very mm -hmm. quickly, in a time of turmoil, they fed into Nazism. Now, again, I, you've got to be very careful there because then people can weaponize that back against you. Oh, he says that Boris Johnson is going to become Hitler or something like that. No, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But um, 
populists are, tend to be fact-averse, complex-averse. They, they don't like awkward questions or people who ask them. Um, and they don't like the history being challenged. You know, the, the most vicious attacks on my book uh, have come from conservative historians and cons the conservative right, who, who sort of, how dare he sort of tell the truth? And we all know it already, you know. Uh, it was a bit odd, really. <laughs> anyway, <never> mind. Um, <laughs> because, because all the commentators from people who've read the book go, oh, I never knew that. Anyway, um, but so with, with the populist thing, it's very, very dangerous. Uh, if you just, if you, if you normalize lying and you make it okay for politicians to lie or just get away with things uh, and just, just laugh it all off, as Boris Johnson has done throughout his life, um, it's a very dangerous thing because you just lower the bar and the standard of what is acceptable in government. Mm. And it's very difficult to then pull that back again to, to what you would expect of your government, you know. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson has lied and lied and lied throughout his career just to advance himself. Um, and, and I find it shocking that he became prime minister. I, I'm, and I'm not a rabid anti-conservative at all. My parents were conservatives. The Conservative Party has and used to have in larger numbers some fairly sensible people in it, you know, and people of the centrist-type conservatives are not necessarily wrong about a lot of things. But they've, they've, they've swallowed themselves up into this populist, small-minded party, and I think it's dangerous, yeah, it's dangerous. And, and they have been enabled by the media, which sort of goes along with it. You know, you've got mm. the political character of The Sun, who is a friend of Boris Johnson and the ex-boyfriend of, of Carrie Simmons. Um, you know, he's like cheering them on from the side. There's no... And that, and that remains Britain's most widely read newspaper. So mm. uh, it's a joke, you know. It's a complete yeah. joke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you do you see the press as the main issue here? Like, I mean, I've seen people people sort of. There was a petition. I think it's reached a hundred thousand signatures to criminalise lying in the House of Commons, which mm. I, I mean, I, that yeah. seems like it's very. Yeah, it just seems like it's very open to abuse because then you have to pick someone who is the one who gets to decide what is the lie. Yeah. And, and for me, that, that just becomes very messy. Oh, but do you see the press you. as the main problem? All these, all these regulatory bodies, uh, you know, whether it be Ofcom or whatever, they take so long to, to come to their decision. <laughs> we saw this over the referendum, you know, that... Uh, you know, weird. Uh, I don't say this uh, in a fact. Weirdly, to their credit, the Leave side were brilliant. You know, they just threw truth out the window and said, "Let's go for it. We'll just make up a load of stuff, and uh, mm. we'll press everyone's buttons." And meanwhile, the stronger in Remain camp was a complete chaotic mess of sort of numbers and 
there was no emotional case for the European Union. They just did it mm. on on a sort of oh your phone tariff will be more expensive and you know and all this stuff. Uh, and um, there was no mention of the chaos that would come to Northern Ireland, for example. You know, I mean, there what there was people were having that discussion, but they were having that discussion mm. on Twitter and Facebook. There was no broader debate, so you ca- it turned into a sort of one of those video games where you've got people punching each other in a sort of fake boxing match and see who the knockout comes with. There was no concern about truth. Maybe uh, regulating truth in the House of Commons would be probably almost impossible, but maybe the promises people make in big election, maybe we need to examine the truth of proposals put forward in things like, I mean, Let's hope to God there's never a referendum in this country ever again. But if there is something like that, then you need somebody to be regulating that. And the, the people who should be doing that are the BBC. And and I am not a BBC basher at all. I think the BBC mm. is a great institution, but <laughs> they should have not afforded such balance, so-called, to the EU referendum because it wasn't balanced. One side was lying and the other side was talking about mobile phone roaming charges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get well. I mean, I think we, we disagree on that. I, I think the BBC was a great institution. Um, I think they, uh, I think it's, it's coming very close to being beyond saving for me at this point. They, um, they've lost almost all of my respect and there's still independent journalists in there like in individuals doing great work but when the head of the bbc is a conservative party donor yeah. i i don't i i just i begin to lose trust because then it's just part of the revolving door that that already sort of has, has sucked in the media and much of the the kind of like establishment or ruling class or however you want to define it um and i get yeah, I feel like the BBC is, it needs like root and branch reform to become what it aspires to be and used to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, although there's a danger there that we sort of think there was some rosy, nostalgic moment in the past and the BBC was, um, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe again, a bit like a nation, we aspire for the, the BBC to be what we want to believe it was when it was never quite that in the first place. I mean, the BBC... BBC's overseas foreign coverage, World Service mm-hmm. stuff, is, is very, very good. You know, they're very good at holding other nations <laughs> to account, <laughs> like Russia, for example. Um, mm. uh, the Russian, um, the BBC's Russia service, you know, r- journalism about Russia and Putin, I think, is outstanding. Uh, and the, a lot of the stuff uh, in, in the Middle East currently is is good. But, but in the UK, yes, it's... Uh, it does need a kick, definitely. I mean, they, they've always put in um, director generals. Administrations have forever put in director generals who were friendly to the administration. That happened under Blair as well. Um, mm. I don't think that's a new uh, thing, mm. but um, yeah. I mean, that seems like a flaw in itself to, to me. I mean, I'd like to. I'm not, but I, uh, I'm not sure how you separate it being a state-funded broadcaster and not allowing the, 
that the people running the state to have any input in it at all. I'm not sure how you kind of like separate the two. You're welcome to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's the same with archbishops. It's, you know, there are so many things that need to be reformed in this country, you know, which I, which I thought when I was in my 20s or teens, would, would lot, by the time I got to this, you know, middle age, <laughs> I thought they would all sort of, I thought, there's no way we could, you know, the, a huge bugbear in mind is those 90-odd um, hereditary peers in the House of Lords. I mean, mm. on what, what planet do you ha allow uh, hereditary, uh, and not just the hereditary peers, the bishops? You know, Britain is one of uh, two countries on earth that has clerics making laws. Yeah, The other one is Iran. I mean, you could arguably say the Vatican as well. So you could say, let's be fair and say three. There are three countries on this planet that have clerics who can enact and enable laws and who can influence laws. And Britain is one of them. We've got um, 36 bishops in the House of Lords. And we've got 92, I think it is, or possibly, sometimes it's 91, 92, hereditary peers. I mean, it's bonkers. Um, and... Everyone goes along with it. And, and so every now and then when a hereditary peer dies and they have their so-called elections to hold, an, to, you know, to, to appoint another hereditary peer to replace the hereditary peer that's died, on political Twitter, everyone's really interested. So who would it be? Maybe it would be the 24th Earl of Carnarvon or something like that. And I'm just staring at my screen going, you know, I used to, in a previous life, in my 30s, I, I had a job where I, I did sort of cultural awareness lectures to people from other countries. And when I used to, people who were coming here to work, and when I used to explain the parliamentary system and the House of Lords to people, you would have people from Germany literally sitting forward on their chairs going, what? People would... People would have their jaws, literally. It was like some scene out of a bad police academy movie. Jaws literally hanging to the floor. Um, and yet in Britain, we sort of, all, oh, yes, it's our way of doing things and we're unique and isn't it fabulous, you know, Ermin and Christian. Yeah. I mean, I've been asking quite a lot of people this, this question, actually, um, where I'm not sure how we make all of these reforms it feels like we need some like i keep calling it the big review of britain mm. we get like a whole bunch of people and we sit down and potentially along with some sort of like citizens assembly which is an idea i quite like and we 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 figure out because there's there's not just one thing as you mentioned there's a whole mm. bunch of things that have been sort of bubbling under the surface for in some cases decades and have there's nothing been done about it but like the big problem that i see because i've spoken to a lot of people about this like the guys from unlock democracy people uh, from make votes matter like people trying to yeah get us a, a codified constitution or change our voting system or um i'm trying to get isabel hardman on on the podcast who wrote a great book called um why we get the wrong politicians and there's lots of people who have identified both the the issues with our with the system and proposed ways in which we could fix this but i don't know 
how we get past that inertia of getting the the politicians who are in charge to go well you know go at it you know you you guys you know have fun let's let's you know change the system that's put us in these positions of power and i don't know how we get to that no, I, I don't know either I, i've given it i've given that i mean you know it's not in the interests of the ruling party. In fact, under first past the post, if you've got a clear majority, it's in, you've got no interest in electoral reform because because mm. in short your short term, you don't need you don't need the other parties. That's one problem. Secondly, people in the UK across the UK, and I know Scottish people will always get angry when they're probably and possibly Northern Ireland as well, but across England certainly. There is enormous ignorance of how our democracy works, and that really needs to change. I mean, I would, if I had my month in Number Ten Downing Street, I would make some sort of constitutional lesson or citizenship GCSE compulsory. I, I would say you have got just like maths, you know, you've got to pass that. You know, you've got to pass it. You've got to understand how your country works on a basic level. And, and I think mm. if you if you did that, if you made people, <laughs> children, understand how the country works, I think not in my generation, but I think in a few, you know, in thirty or forty years' time, I think you could have the will to to change things because it's mm. bonkers. I mean, we've got more politicians, and we have the second largest number of politicians in our two houses of any country on earth after communist China. Right? There are significantly more people in our parliament. So we've got around 800, in, or is it 720 now, I think, in the House of Lords, and then mm. 600 and however many in the House of Commons. 60, so, I think it is, yes. Yeah, it's a vast, vast number. Uh, <laughs> we've got all these I hadn't thought problems. about that because America's well, five really? times the size and they've got 538 yeah we've got this enormous number of politicians yeah, I, I, I witnessed the House of Lords up close uh, back in the 90s because my mother worked for a Lord um, and I became I mean I already wasn't exactly a fan of the House of Lords but I became appalled you know I, <laughs> Oh, yeah. my, no disrespect to my, my late mother, who was a fantastic woman who insulted Anne Whitcomb, but um, she was working for an extremely doddery lord. They shared uh, an office with an extremely doddery lord. There were no, none of them could operate a computer. They, they, were, they, were, <laughs> they were completely out of touch with the modern world, mm. and they were sort of voting and enacting legislation. Um, you know, the average age of the Lords is something like 69 or something. It's ridiculous. Um, it's not reflective of this country. So that house is well, well overdue reform. But, of course, they never get it through because the House of Lords vote. <laughs> the House of Lords would get to vote on the reform. Um, mm. So, you know, you're in a sort of catch-22 situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a point someone had made on Twitter actually recently that I saw was that people in their late 60s, 70s and 80s don't stay in the workforce because of you know, like physical inability and mental decline. And yet, <laughs> in quite a lot of cases, those are the people running the country. 
Yeah. Uh, and I had never quite thought about that like in, in that way before. And I was like, whoa, that's, yeah. that's a really good point. I do think we need to have more older people. Um, you know, we do need more older people to be visible in society. And having some of them in, say, an upper chamber or the House of Commons is a good thing. Just mm -hmm. as, you know, I, I do, uh, there does come a point where people seem, in every other walk of life, where people seem to think that older people cease to matter. And I, I wouldn't want that world. But, but to have mm -hmm. the House of Lords dominated, by that older age demographic, I think it is um, is 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 dangerous, really, mm. uh, and it's yeah. one of the reasons we're stuck in the mud. Mm. So yeah, um, to sort of wrap uh, wrap things up here, because uh, we've taken uh, taken some quite a lot of your time here already. Uh, <laughs> do you want to um, give us some like one of what what was the most surprising? thing that you discovered whilst writing your book like, so, like because obviously you would have started with um some ideas of of the sort of fake history as such that you wanted to to, to write about or debunk or whatever words you want to use but what was the most surprising thing that you kind of discovered um during your your research and writing so the the Yes, some of the things I wrote about I had written about for years and and was quite familiar with. That didn't mean that I knew them in depth. So uh, I didn't know actually a lot of, of the details about Churchill in depth until I started planning and then writing the book. And, uh, uh, but I kind of broadly knew and had written about him many, many times. But once you dug in, uh, and this is not the, the full up the answer, by the way. But once I dug into Churchill, the extraordinary thing about Churchill was actually how similar he was to Boris Johnson. <laughs> that that was. I had written several articles, uh, one for Politico, in which I had said, "Oh, Boris Johnson's no Winston Churchill." Actually, as I started to write about Winston Churchill, I realized he was very similar indeed to Boris Johnson. Um, was not very good in many of the jobs he did, uh, and. Um, was not always particularly popular with a broad swathe of the population. So that that the extent of that was quite surprising. In addition, there were some things that I had a sort of notion of when I started writing the book, uh, but which I hadn't really uh, dug into research-wise. So I wanted to I wanted the book to have a broad swathe. So it starts off with. Um, Churchill and World War Two, but I didn't want to. I wanted. I wanted my canvas to be as wide as the as the World Atlas. So I did challenge myself. I did write about North Korea and I wrote about um, Japan and uh, Genghis Khan actually, and how people in Europe have long had this sort of fear of hordes from the east, you know, and uh, sort of looked down on on them and the yellow peril and all of this kind of thing. Um, I should have known this because, I, as I said earlier, I did work doing cultural awareness and language training for, for a decade, and I, I should have made this um, connection before. What, what was amazing was <laughs> pretty much any country you visited, you saw the same pattern repeat of um, fake history, uh, some notion of an origin story. And as I was writing about North Korea, well, Korea, but North Korea and their North Koreans believe that they have a sacred mountain called Mount Piktu. And they believe that there's a sort of 
uh, there's a, there's a special blood called Pictu blood, which is uh, like a, a royal blood, which is imbued within, you know, runs in the veins of, of some of the people, and that the Kims are have this royal blood, and that they uh, it's all ridiculous. And and in the West and in the UK, you can go Huffington Post articles mocking the crazy Kim Jong Il and or you know Kim Jong Il. Anyway. You start to read it, and then, as I was researching, and this is the honest truth, I did not set out to make the comparison, but as I was writing, I was reading about Pictou Black, like, oh, Pictou Black, and I thought, hold on, in the UK, there are people who believe in blue blood. <laughs> now, not literally blue blood, but there are people who believe that there are our royals and our aristocratic classes, that they are somehow... Uh, have got breeding and all of these things, and that they are somehow inherently entitled to rule and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And as I as I went through the cartoonish North Korean uh, philosophy jusha, um, which set out uh, the five principles of jusha, which I won't bore you with, but but basically the the, the fundamental one is sovereign and military independence from other nations, right? Uh, and as I was going through it, I thought, I mean, this could be Brexit. Hmm. <laughs> it, it could literally be the philosophy of Brexit. And, uh, and I, I, did, I did not set out to make that comparison, and I pulled myself away from that comparison and I do not want to suggest that the Kims are any more similar to Boris Johnson than Hitler is. But it did demonstrate that what we laugh at in other countries, we do ourselves. Yeah. Their great narrative of their independence war and the war against the South was very similar to the narrative of us in World War II. And again, it's not akin to it because the the, the the Korean War was not World War Two, but the narrative of it was very similar. Uh, and so I thought there was a very valuable lesson there. You know, even as we mock and laugh at other people, mm. we we might be doing it ourselves. So mm. that, well, weirdly. I mean, yeah, Kim Il-sung, yeah. he's got the floppy hair, he's a bit chunky, <laughs> he likes to lie a lot. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, he likes Obviously, to walk yeah. around. He likes to walk around in, in, inspecting things, and you know Boris Johnson loves to sort of do Action Man Johnson, where he puts on yellow vests and puts on a tin hat and and sort of walks around. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, not tin hat. Although there is there is some footage of him firing machine gun from when he was foreign secretary. You know, and that's anyway. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And again, if you point this out, people go, oh, everybody does that. Well, fine. Maybe we shouldn't laugh at North Korea so much then. Mm, well, I mean, actually, I listened to um, an interview with Yeon Mi Park, who is um, an escapee of North Korea. Yes. Um, and yeah, like, wow. I mean, the, the entire interview, I was just like mouth agape. Yeah. Like three hours, just like, what? <laughs> No way! It's yeah. it's a 
It's a horrifying regime. It is horrendous. Um, you see, that that is the end result of 50 years of lying. Yeah? Mm. And that's and fake history and fake mm. news and drilling down and embedding yourselves in it. They're, they're standing in front of the world. And, and I do make the point in the book that we should stop mocking North Korea and we should start viewing it as a sort of example of the end result of all this tinkering with our hard-won freedoms and democracies because mm. it's all great to laugh at Boris Johnson or the Kims and to say, oh, aren't they funny and aren't they ridiculous? But, but there is the end result of it. That's where the death of democracy lies. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And as she yeah, says, and uh... she says, a lot of people that you've got to remember, a lot of North Koreans buy into it. They believe it. They believe that they are the greatest nation on earth, and that um, that everybody else is inferior, and that they their opera is the greatest, that their pop music is fantastic, that everybody has wonderful lives, um, and that they're better off. Not you know that you know they believe it. So you've got to be careful. We have to be careful. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's also for me, it's it's a stark lesson as well as as everything you've mentioned there in in what happens when you allow censorship to to run rampant. Um, which is, I don't know. I get I get I get very uncomfortable at the amount of people who are fine with it at the minute. And I, it's obviously a very difficult time because. There's a lot of people saying a lot of really just blatantly untrue things um, surrounding COVID and all that stuff. But I never believe that censorship is the way forward. Um, I just, I can't ever, I can't bring myself to, I can't even find an example where in history, where the censors were the good guys. I just, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. I feel like, like, like we said earlier, you have to, you have to allow people to be stupid and then explain why they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, to, the, the, yeah, uh, the, the counterbalance of that is that you need someone in place to challenge the lies. You know, if, if the lie is allowed to run rampant then uh, and, and not be stopped, you can be in a dangerous situation. It does, I mean, with, with Twitter uh, suspending accounts, for example, I think there does have to come a point where you allow the lie to be challenged and you allow it to be um, taken on. But there has to come a point where, I mean, you know, those, I don't know if you saw those scenes of people in um, Edinburgh in yesterday. Oh, really? Did, in you, did you see it? Did you see it? So in Edinburgh oh, yesterday, a group of, a um, small group of people who seem to have met on Facebook turned up at Edinburgh Castle and started uh, invoking oh, Article 61 of, uh, I mean, I'm very grateful. This is all great advertising for my book. It shows the stupidity <laughs> of fake history. But uh, they started mm -hmm. invoking Article 61 of the Magna Carta. Uh, there never was an Article 61 of the Magna Carta. There was a Chapter 61. <laughs> there was a Chapter 61 of the Magna Carta. Uh, and it ceased to have any relevance in 1215, shortly after it was signed. Um, and these people believe that if they go around 
invoking uh, uh, chapter 61, what they call article 61, that somehow they can take back control of Edinburgh Castle or, or something because it's the it belongs to the people and whatever. I mean, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Magna Carta is. Uh, not the Magna Carta that upsets people. What Magna Carta is, and it's a fundamental misunderstanding of history and pretty much logic and sanity. Uh, and you, you look at those people and you think, they're all articulate. They can speak, you know, they can get dressed in the morning. And yet they've managed to become members of this cult, which is what they're in. They're in a cult and they probably don't realize that. And it's damaging. I mean, pro most people, thankfully, will laugh at it. But I then think about those people and their lives and their families. And they're in this very stupid cult, uh, believing this very stupid thing. And that's probably damaging for them as well. So how long do you allow people with such ridiculous views to run rampant and you're right you can't just start shutting them down but logic does not work with those people mm. if you're in a cult and you have bought into the cult logic and rationale do not work you, you you're, you're too far gone and the danger is you suck other people into it. And there are cults all around us you know there's the article 61 people in Edinburgh but there's also a cult of Brexit. There's also a cult of Remain. Yeah, yeah that the EU yeah. is infallible and, and perfect. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I mean, I, I, I got, yeah. I, I, my, my feelings on the EU changed uh, while writing my book. I actually mm. ended up feeling that in the very, like I do, like the, the conclusion I came to in my book was that like, I'm really terrified of what the free market libertarian wing of the Conservative Party is going to do post-Brexit. And on that balance, I would probably still vote to remain. But I became incredibly like skeptical that the EU project as a whole can succeed in the way that people want it to. It feels like it either needs to go it like where it's at at the minute needs to go forwards or backwards they need to go for more integration or less because where mm. they're at the minute is trying to balance this thing that doesn't work it, or at least that's yeah, the trying, that it's, a, it's an eternal compromise isn't it i, I mean mm. I, you know people try and portray me as an arch remainer or something like this I, I, you know there are deep rooted problems with the European Union and uh, the compromise is probably one of the biggest ones and a lack of guts actually. And mm. maybe Brexit will shake it up a little bit, but th there was no way you could ever quite create the grand vision from these long established nation states. <laughs> you know, yeah. you were always gonna have the likes of Farage or, you know, or equivalents thereof, Le Pens and people um, stirring up these deep-rooted notions, and um, yeah, there are prob there are problems there. My, my the reason, if I was to go back in time, I would still very much vote Remain, and I would my my regret would be I would campaign much more vigorously on the big picture, and the big picture goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion, which is my father and I walking around those fields in Essex when I was a child, and my father, a conservative councillor, 
uh, trying to explain that to him, the EEC as it then was, and he, he, I remember him talking to me about this bizarrely, and actually about the EU when it came into being, that, that I was there, the first in three generations of the family who had, had not had to go off and fight in a pointless world war, you know, um, and that, that, that it had brought peace and prosperity and harmony, for good or ill, to our corner of the earth. And um, that really is my, and always has been my case for the EU. If you're trading and if you have open doors to each other, and if you're working collectively together on some grand project, you're you're very unlikely to start breaking out into war with each other. Hmm. Well, that feels like a nice place on which to end things. We've come full circle. Um, so yeah, Otto, I want to I want to thank you for your time. Um, do you want to tell people where they can find you and your work? Well, you can you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> I never shut up. Uh, my book, Fake History, is available in most good bookshops or uh, online purveyors of books, um, and um, it's coming out in Australia and New Zealand this month. So if anyone's watching from there, you can buy it likewise there. And uh, there's an audible rated by me and my voice <laughs> i didn't put a funny voice on although i did accidentally put on an accent in chapter nine where i apparently and i've only been told this by someone who's listened to the book <laughs> where i apparently give an australian an australian accent to an american general why i did that god only knows thank you for oh that's wonderful well you have to get to chapter nine then for people to, to hear that so, um i will put links for everything in in the description below um but yeah thanks very much it's been it's been a pleasure thank you thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast don't forget our sponsor expressvpn and my book brexit the establishment civil war can both be found in the links in the description below and also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. The animal dragged a child around its enclosure. The child had fallen into that enclosure. Officials are now defending their actions. ABC's Alex. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat, I'm not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. There's no panic selling. These people, you know, they may have bought at $4, sat through $400, went back to 40, went to 350, back down to 110, and they have not sold. All they've done is bought more. And there's no answer for that. There's no, they, they, you know, it, it is like art of war mastery by a bunch of idiots who should know better. And they're just, they're just like, I'm not fucking leaving! Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace has never been seen before. Uh, the short 70, 60, 80% of a company, let alone 140%, I think a lot of people universally believe something is wrong there. They're powerful, they want a stock hire. It's child's play. Why ever sell into the maw of Wall Street, you know, Reddit bets? Why, why, why?
but everyone's wrong. It's like the big short again, or more like the big short squeeze this time, right? So here we got the fox guarding the hen house, and one of the hens is complaining, the fox is out to kill us, and the farmer says, I'm sorry, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Whenever there is not billions, but like trillions of dollars involved in something, it, I, I argue that nothing is off the table. The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history in plain sight. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance. Insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. You've got maybe 10 million people doing this who now own, you know, probably more than 100 million shares. And eventually, you know, they might own everything.